Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. All right, so let's take a, a deeper dive today, everybody. Let's talk about uh, higher education and those that are not just talking about it, but they're leaning in completely in trying to work very hard at providing opportunities um, that are new and different, and I think potentially more thoughtful than the systems that we've had in place for generations. We're going to be speaking today with Josh Joshua Brogy, uh, Dr. Brogy. He is the founder and CEO of Wolf. Uh, Josh, I want to dive right in. Tell me about a collegiate university. Help define that for our audience. I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. Um, so collegiate universities have been around for a long time. Uh, Oxford and Cambridge are both collegiate universities. I think what really sets them apart is that the faculty and students and teaching all happen in colleges. The colleges are independent entity that really have a lot of control over their internal social life. But they sit within a wider context and framework. You know, the University of California is kind of a collegiate university. So you think of Berkeley or UCLA or something like that. They're in the UC system. University of London would be another one. Um, Delhi University has 98 colleges. They, they kind of sit on a spectrum, I think, between those in which the brand of the college is most prominent. And so nobody says, Mom, I, I got into the UC system. Uh, they say I got into Berkeley, um, and those where where the colleges are a little bit more nested underneath the overall brand. So somebody would say, "Mom, I got into Oxford," rather than I went to I don't know St. John's College or something like that. And why why for you is it important, or why in 2018 was it important to lean into this, um, I guess this sector of higher education, or to at least differentiate and to prop up and say this is a a way of thinking, a way of approaching higher education that is much more thoughtful and resonating to current students. Yeah. I, I think what's great about a collegiate system is that you get a small enough unit where you can have a social community, you can have a way of doing things that's differentiated and which meets the the requirements and needs of the students at that college or the, the faculty at that college. Wolf is the first global collegiate university that allows education organizations to join as member colleges and then offer degrees, which are accredited. And so we have member colleges in seven or eight countries. And so the language between the colleges can differ. The pedagogical style between the colleges differs quite a lot. And, and the sort of format and style of one college uh, would not be easily mapped onto another college successfully. Um, and so we just assume diversity from the start in terms of uh, learner needs and, and pedagogical teaching styles. Are there any competitors out there? Because I'm trying to wrap my mind around. Because there's it makes such it, there's there's a lot of common sense in what you're saying, <laughs> but sometimes yeah. I think I don't think I'm I'm going out of bounds here. But higher ed has not also been known for common sense when it comes to doing <laughs> <laughs> do we have programs yes. that maybe are applicable today to today's you know learner and or job market in that manner. So. Yeah. Um, tell me about the competitive landscape and also what was the initial response when you launched from both the college side of it, but also the, the consumer side? Yeah. Yeah. So taking it in backwards order, um, 
you know, the colleges have a relationship with their students. And so, you know, if you imagine that spectrum between Oxford on the one end, where the university brand really owns the relationship with the student, and maybe the University of London or the UC system on the other end, where students feel affiliation with KCL or UCL or, or Queen Mary or one of these institutions, which are members of the overall uh, university, um, we're probably a little bit closer to the UC system or University of London system. So students really feel a relationship with their college. And that means it's important that our degree certificates say the name of the college in, a in addition to the overall university. Um, and so as a higher education institution, we want our colleges to really have great relationships with their students. We don't want to get too far in the way. Um, it means that effectively we have three layers as an organization. And this is fairly unique in the, the education landscape. We have all of the colleges. We have a proprietary software platform that tracks their educational activities for compliance with quality assurance standards. And then we have a set of licensing requirements associated with the university or higher education institution. So you end up with a college in India doing something in our software, which is matched to a license, and therefore it's an accredited college and offering accredited degree programs. So I think that model is unique. I don't think there's anything else in the uh, landscape today that's doing that, although there are many other uh, collegiate universities and there have been for over a thousand years. Is it too narrow or is it part of the story to say what you're doing and what you have built and your team is at some level um, a, almost like a learning marketplace? Well, not, you know, um, the, the challenge, with, of course, with, with calling it a marketplace is that it assumes a purely price-based instrumental mm -hmm. view of education. I, you know, as somebody who was personally on the faculty and the governing congregation of the University of Oxford for many years, I have a very high view of education and the personal yeah. formation that comes out of it. You know, there's one aspect of education that tends to get closer to price, which is, is this student ready for the job market? But there are other aspects of education that are more long-term, are they well-formed to have a good life? Will it change their overall kind of uh, happiness or their ability to participate in civil society? Or do they have the first principles that will allow them to adapt as things change? And so if you memorize a lot of facts and you're ready for the marketplace, you don't necessarily have the deeper learning that's ready for the changes ahead. Um, so with that caveat, I would say all universities are um, market places but reluctant to acknowledge it so they're matching students and teachers they're matching catering companies with eaters they're matching real estate with uh sleepers and you know you have this brokerage happening across the modern university between a lot of vendors many of which are for profit and the overall market maker is the nonprofit entity the university I love that you said the brokerage component. So because I'm glad you clarified because you're right. Even when I was saying market, it didn't feel right, but there's something to understanding the plumbing yeah. and how the system works that yes, you bring your years of, uh, of experience as faculty and leadership within higher education, but there's also some secret sauce here that look, I'm from 10,000 feet. We're just meeting during this conversation and interview, yeah. but there are a lot of people that have thought, how do we take education global? How do we make sure we diversify as a university, right? But there's got to be something here that you've done that 
I mean, it's striking me and I'm sure it's striking the listener that there is something incredibly powerful with what you've done with Wolf in tying licensure um, degree programs that match those colleges. It, it feels as if it's a, that's maybe why I thought marketplace at first, because it's, there's a convening, like you're bringing all of the pieces together and taking care of everything. So that in essence, if I'm a student in Nashville, Tennessee, but I'm thinking about my education from another country, like you're making that possible. You are a conduit to that experience, even taking place. Is that fair? It is. And, you know, we built the first software platform that's able to track the equality assurance metrics that are all required and defined by regulators so that we can really provably show that an educational experience is compliant with licensing and therefore accredited. And so if you effectively just build a course using our tools, it can be accredited extremely rapidly. And the efficiency of that is, I think, really important in contrast to the existing system. So here, here would be the kind of analogy or anecdote to, to prove what is the question of, of efficiency in universities as market makers. If I'm standing in front of a classroom of students, on average in the United States, I'm an adjunct lecturer working at 2.5 universities, earning not amazing wages. <laughs> My students at the other end of the room are going into debt currently at 1.6 or 7 trillion US dollars. And so you might have $100,000 of students in the room in terms of their tuition fees. And I might be earning three to four cents on every dollar. And those students are going into debt. So the match between the student and teacher there is very inefficient. And kind of both parties are losing, which struck me as a very bad uh, situation when I was a lecturer. And we have colleges where, where teachers are earning you know, well above 60 and even in some cases, 90% of the student tuition, which means the class sizes are smaller and the overall efficiency throughput is much higher and students are paying a lot less. So it's a really radical change in terms of what are the costs of bringing all those parties together and can you do it more efficiently with software? So let's step back maybe a, a few steps or, or or let's go up in the air and look at the at the system what are are there downfalls or potential blind spots just from the higher education model? Like what because you it feels like you're a disruptor in a very positive way. I think my parent hat's coming on for my young kids. I'm glad that there are the the Joshua Brogries out there because you're thinking about it in a very global and progressive way that I think helps to unify higher education and solidify the offering because I'm a believer in it like you are, though I think that it'd be fair to say that there are challenges to the system globally. Um what are the potential blind spots or how do we guard against that? Because I do think education writ large is we fall victim to being very react reactionary and then saying, oh gosh, we just lost an entire generation of students because we didn't think about that. Or we could have been more proactive or we could have thought about technology, take ed tech, right? You know, everything was a patchwork. Let's just digitize everything. And we went, wait a minute, maybe we need to think more progressively. And then we have a pandemic hit and those universities and and K-12 or primary systems that had already been thinking about it were much better prepared to support students in remote settings. So what are potential mm. blind spots we need to be thinking about, or how do we think about the next step? Well, technology evolves very quickly, and uh, pedagogical practices do not. And so one of the blind spots, I think, is that the, the pandemic forced us online very quickly. You had you know, roughly 27,000 universities in the world were online in a matter of weeks or months. 
And, you know, in some cases, they had enough infrastructure in place online. Maybe part of their library was digitized or, or something like this. Um, they were able to use Zoom or, or one of the other tools. Um, and in other cases, they were not prepared. So uh, did they have, you know, classroom engagement techniques that were honed for a physical environment that were suddenly, you know, not well considered for an online environment? And, you know, a lot of these techniques have taken hundreds of years to, to come together into a well-honed set of tools. And I don't think we're there yet in the online environment for sure. And we need to be really thoughtful about how we craft educational experiences online to make sure they're as good as offline or at least as good as they can be, in some cases, even better. Do we have guardrails in place to ensure that we're asking the right questions or is it sort of not to use the the U.S. analogy, but the Wild West? Well, you know, one of the interesting things is that when you're doing anything that's tracked in software, you have a lot more data about the outcomes. I I think in five or 10 years, we'll have a much clearer picture of what works and what doesn't work than we ever have before, because so much of of student learning is now happening online. It was happening quietly before the pandemic, um, but now it's happening, you know, very prominently. If you think about pre-pandemic online learning, at a brick and mortar university, I would guess it was 75%. This is me just making up a number of, of what would happen. You know, I look in the library, all the students are on their laptops. You know, they're downloading the books on the internet rather than trying to find them on the shelves. They're composing, you know, their work on Google Docs or something like this. And then they're emailing it to the professor who responds by email with their grades and then loads it into some kind of learning management system. Um, that's in the physical environment, actually engaging in online learning. Um, but the the percentage there is maybe 75%. Um, you know, during the pandemic, it was 100%. Let's talk about, so let's go into your faculty days. And I will also uh, share that I was an adjunct professor for online <laughs> universities right. for a yeah. number of years. So I, I speak with, and I even developed courses as well. So I have some, some yeah. uh, very personal experience in this, but help me understand the role of faculty in the world that you're building, um, and if you're an artist, the canvas that you're painting on. How do we how do we support sort of the the profs, the, the professors, and, and proctors going forward for the world that you've already been building over the last four years, so that we do see this alignment? Just like we're talking about, you're saying about look, you've got a professor there, adjunct making X students and de- things aren't aligned here, and they're both losing out potentially. So how do we prepare them for these environments? And I guess what I'm wanting to guard against is just assuming that if I'm a good professor in a brick and mortar, then I could do the same thing in a very different environment where I don't yeah. have the ability to have a dedicated audience of maybe two, 300, 400 students in a lecture hall at Michigan State mm-hmm. University. I've got them all around the world and I can't see them and they really can't see me. So how do we support that person yeah. that is a, a part of this story? It's going to be different in some ways. I think that's for sure. And so we, we have to be considered. My my observation is that online learning requires a lot more preparation than in-person learning. And so the amount of preparation that I see professors doing uh, when they build out their course plans and actually gather all the data and you know cut down the PDFs to the right chapter and all this stuff, it's quite tedious and detailed. And sometimes that's happening on the fly 15 minutes before an in-person session with photocopiers running and people walking in with, you know, a new idea that they want to lecture about. 
And sometimes that's a bit harder in an online environment. Um, whether that's good or bad, you know, you're losing some of the spontaneity on the one hand. On the other hand, you're probably getting uh, more reflection into the, the course design. And course design itself is becoming increasingly professionalized in the online environment. And sometimes it's worrying if you don't have actual subject matter experts doing the course design anymore. And sometimes it's just um, a new dimension of what it means to teach where you really have to craft uh, online experiences uh, much more carefully before they go out to students. I'll say one thing. It certainly exposes um, what's happening in an institution where some professors, you know, pre-pandemic are lecturing one way and other professors pre-pandemic are lecturing another way. Nobody knows. And then once it all gets pulled in, uh, the disparities between styles and levels of organization uh, gets made very clear very quickly. Uh, that's a very, very uh, good point. Let, let, let's pivot. Tell me about your sort of your DNA in in sort of why you what what was it what's it about your background because I think it's fascinating because you're an entrepreneur if I'm labeling you in that regard you're an educational entrepreneur yeah. and that people can identify that there's a challenge there's a gap in the market there's white space that needs to be filled but the majority then sit back and sort of watch to see if others <laughs> recognize the same patterns and and come up with a solution but then there are those that say all right I recognize it. I think I have the wherewithal to, to be able to do this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into it wholeheartedly. So tell me about yeah. sort of your background. Why is it that you felt confident enough and really strong enough to be able to say, I think I've got an idea here that can really take off? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Um, I, I can say biographically, you know, my father was an entrepreneur and, and ran a technology company and sold it in the '90s, right around the dot com crash. And at the same time, my grandfather was on the board of Harvard um, and was engaged in institution building. And watching those two forces at play uh, was extremely interesting and probably formative for me. But my own experience, you know, on faculty at Oxford and on the governing parliament, the, the congregation, was that institution building was possible because Oxford is a highly decentralized organization where the colleges effectively rule and the vice chancellor can be overthrown by 2% of the, the parliament, which is extremely low as a margin. <laughs> um, and at the same time, actually getting something done was very challenging. So I was looking at creating a new college at Oxford and realized this was going to take five or 10 years of grind. We we're going to end up with one college and that was more or less going to be it. And at the same time, I thought, well, we could add 10 colleges a year uh, to this institution, fill them with students of the same quality, fill them with faculty of the same quality, and really just expand the opportunity. Um, but I think institutions are very hard to, to change, especially if they have long and deep traditions. And so probably my entrepreneurial DNA at that point came out and decided that it was time to start something new. What's been the biggest challenge? So you have a fascinating background with your grandfather and, and your dad and, and the dot com era, and, uh, and I would imagine that these the you know these people um, in your life that they played a massive role in sort of the imprint of who you are now. Um, when you become an entrepreneur, I think there are there are those times where I think we go in thinking, "I've got this," or "This is an area that I'm just it's not my <laughs> cup of tea," but you you just kind of have to do it, right? And figure it out. What was it about being an entrepreneur that you found? You know what? This I'm really good at these nine things, and this one thing I'm gonna I'm gonna find talent in that manner. So, what have you learned about yourself when you think about the team that you put together to be as successful that, as you are now today in 2022? 
Well, you know, when I started the company, um, I, I was an academic and I did not enjoy bureaucracy at all. And I didn't enjoy <laughs> government regulation. And so it's effectively a company that, that proves bureaucratic compliance and regulatory compliance. Um, that's one of its major software services. And I was not a software engineer. And so I had to teach myself software engineering very quickly and had to learn government regulation very quickly. And those were huge challenges. I was never an awesome software engineer in year one. And you know, from a regulatory and compliance perspective, um, it's not where I want to spend all my days. So I'm extremely glad to have a, a strong team around me now, co-founders on the engineering side who are exceptional engineers, and a whole compliance and accreditation team that's just really capable of dealing with those issues. So I'm, I'm very glad to have delegated those functions. Um, and the people who are taking them on are, are much more talented than I am, uh, for sure. Let's talk about the uh, the potential for Wolf. Um, I would imagine that the sky is the limit, but please, you know, uh, chalk the field for me. What what are we looking at? If sort of everything is online, um, literally, I guess, with capabilities, functionality, uh, people's mm. awareness of the opportunity from the institution side to be a partner. Like when the sky's the limit, like what are we looking at here in five to ten years with Wolf? What's the vision? Well. We're building the largest global collegiate university in the world if we succeed. And so right now we're growing by about one college per month and onboarding them and putting them through all the compliance regime and tracking all their data and getting it all pulled together to build a picture of quality and, and fill any gaps that are missing. And that rate is increasing. We, we hope to be growing by two colleges a month and then four colleges a month. And that means that our overall trajectory um, Right now, our colleges are fairly, you know, isolated. They're dealing with their own students. They're part of the wider community. But as we increase in, in college numbers and start crossing two, three, four hundred colleges, um, you won't be able to, to go to a major city without a Wolf College. And that increases the community options. And so I think we're transitioning from being, you know, a small collegiate university where the colleges are, are using us as a back office to handle accreditation and maybe white label course content and instructional design support and student acquisition support and student financing support. And then turning it into a global community where I can go to Mexico City and today there are two or three or five Wolf Colleges. There are events associated with that. And I have opportunities as a student that extend across the global network. So that's where we really want to get to, um, including you know, physical campuses, which are starting to come into our network now. Um, and I think the opportunities will be very exciting. Tell me about the reception from, I'm going to call them competitors, but what, what, tell me about the brick and mortars, those that are sort of staunchly, you know, positioned on legacy and <laughs> doing yeah. it the long, hard way of higher ed. I mean, were you received, have you been received with open arms? Like what's sort of the, are you interesting to people? <laughs> Take me into uh, that. It, it's a fair question. So, you know, one, I think higher education is just a very big space. And so we don't tend to be very uh, competition focused. Um, you know, there are 207 million students roughly today in universities, and it'll be maybe 350 or 380 by 2030. So the kind of marginal student growth per day is like 25,000 students, um, which is roughly three average size universities every day, you know, for the next decade. Um, so it's just a huge growth. There's a lot that needs to be built to support those students. But when it comes to the older brick and mortars, you know, we're really happy to partner with them. It, typically, 50 to 60% of their employee base, their headcount is admin and compliance. And 
Um, that means they're highly inefficient. You know, the American uh, tuition discount rate, which is not the discount between the advertised price and the actual price. It's the discount between the price and the operating cost. It's 27%. So uh, higher ed is, you know, for many small institutions, a loss leader on alumni donations to come later. Um, you know, they're effectively losing money on every single student and hoping to make it up over a lifetime of donations. But but that's not a great way to run uh, a charity or a nonprofit organization. You can run it much more efficiently and sustainably. And so I, I think we're excited about partnering with organizations like that and providing them with the underlying infrastructure they need at a much lower operating cost. Are you having to thread the needle? I mean, I think any take any facet of life. If you know something about what I'm doing that that's not very efficient and you share that with me, unless I am pretty balanced and having a pretty good day and had a solid lunch, I might take that the wrong way and get a little bit defensive. So you make a lot of sense to me and you're able to recognize mm. where these gaps or these inefficiencies are. But I've had my own personal experiences in higher ed where just because I yeah. can tell them I'm staring at a Sharpie like I'm showing on the screen doesn't mean they want to acknowledge the Sharpie <laughs> on the screen. Yeah. And so is there a bit of education in there? Is there a bit of sort of bridge building in, mm. in building trust so that you can kind of say what's obvious or the elephant in the room and yet still create an opportunity for collaboration and understanding as you move forward uh, in a, I guess, yeah. a similar vision? Yeah. There are two things there. One is just, um, we we don't really want to be in, in the sort of um, operating pattern of firing administrators at universities because they use our software. Um, <laughs> one, the, the person that you're effectively selling to is the person that's going to be terminated. And two, it's just not a very exciting job and, and not one that I, I could wake up and do. And so there really has to be a growth opportunity there where the same staff are all retained. Actually, their jobs are more secure because there's a growth opportunity and they're able to support just a much larger number of students. But I think that's point number one. But point number two is, you know, we've partnered with brick and mortars in the past. And we were too small as an organization when we did it. We didn't have our, our kind of post-integration messaging dialed in. And so we had a lot of learning there about, you know, getting everybody on side with technology and all the different stakeholders that need to be kind of aligned around the changes that are happening. And that's really hard work. Um, and so we put a pause on our work with brick and mortars until this year. And so for a couple of years, we just refused to do any more brick and mortar work. We only worked with new kind of high growth, young challenger universities, because they had an appetite for innovation. And we knew that we needed clear messaging if we were going to go into a kind of risk aversion, low innovation appetite environment, um, which, you know, the older brick and mortars do tend to be that way. And so you have to be prepared for it and be really patient and, and be ready to kind of maintain the messaging and align all the stakeholders. That to me, if we're talking, you know, about like burying the lead, like that to me is the lead. Like that shows a lot of that shows the sensibility of you and your team and your approach. Um, I love that because that's that's thoughtful. I think in in developing business and understanding um, because so many businesses they they want to bump up against that wall and it becomes competitive, and it, nobody benefits from it. And to your point, it's not terribly enjoyable. So uh, I think that's a that's a point well taken. Tell me about the name Wolf. Where did that come from? Well, it's from Virginia Woolf, who imagined a, a future more democratic and potentially radical university, um, but also, you know, imagined that what an academic really needs to be intellectually independent is, you know, 500 pounds in a room of one's own. So a kind of modest salary and the ability to um, teach. Now, 
we're in an interesting world because higher education is a double licensed industry. So if you're competent as a teacher and you have a PhD, um, that does not give you the ability to practice your profession. Um, you can't go teach somebody online and, and just bring them to a degree outcome. Um, but if you're licensed as a lawyer or a doctor, you could do that. Uh, you could go open your own private practice. But as a as a faculty member, you need to be a member of a university in order to practice your profession. And so there's a real kind of lack of independence there that worries me in higher education. And one of the goals of Wolf is to make it possible for academics to kind of register into the system, to create accredited courses that are provably compliant, and then teach them on their own, which um, is exciting and, you know, really frees academics from kind of grind of adjunct teaching at multiple universities uh, and some things like that. Let's close with this. Um, would you describe yourself? See, I, I, the word that comes to my mind when I'm thinking about you now is that you're a bit of a maverick, but I say that with with great deference to all that you've achieved in that you, you're an insider, right? And I think what's so powerful in, in education, we think back to ed, education technology, especially in the United States, you know, in the, uh, like 2008, 2000, 2015, you had so many different groups that were sort of piling into ed because they saw... There was a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and they could sort of convert their technologies and, you know, Kazam, it was, it was, you know, fit for schools, um, of all ages, uh, and grades <clears throat> and disciplines, but yet you're an insider. So you've been there, you've been through sort of the, the wars of education at the highest levels it's in your DNA. And I think you're a maverick, like you, you are you're forcing us to think about education in a different way, but not in a way that keep that stops us right in our tracks, but actually converts us onto a path that is much more progressive and matches what it sounds like students and, and brick and mortar and institutions are looking for a way to extend an arm, an olive branch to say, we're not just going to sort of fall, uh, you know, to, to outside pressures and the changes and the winds of education, but we are growing with our students that are now global in a global economy. Do you see yourself as a maverick or what's sort of the moral of the story when people think about you? Uh, well, Rod, it's very generous and uh, a generous definition of mavericks as well. Um, you know, I, I'm building an institution and really I'm committed to the idea that universities have a place in our civilization and that we can make them faster and more able. And if we don't do that, then we run the danger of sending all of our best and brightest to some of the most poorly run organizations uh, for four years during their most formative years. And so the idea of sending students to that kind of um, kind of 19th century bureaucratic institution instead of an innovative one strikes me as a, as a bottleneck uh, for our whole community. Um, so I, I'd really like to see that bottleneck opened. I'd like to see our, our universities become faster and more capable without reducing quality. And so I'm I'm committed to um, helping uh, rather than just sort of, you know, making a big mess or, or trying to make a quick buck. This is not the right uh, industry to be in. If you're trying to get wealthy, um, <laughs> there are mu much easier areas to do that. Well, I hope this is the first of many conversations. You have, you have absolutely piqued my interest. And there are a lot of people with a lot of different ideas, but this has real teeth. Uh, I'm excited to watch the growth and progress that is obviously underfoot at Wolf. Where should people go to either connect with you, learn more about Wolf? Where where should they find you on the, the World Wide Web? <laughs> yeah, um, Wolf is at wolf.university and uh, at Wolf University on Twitter. And I'm at 
uh, Joshua Brogy on Twitter, which is J-O-S-H-U-A, be like boy, R-O-G-G-I on Twitter. Well, Dr. Joshua Brogy, you are uh, a fast friend here. I'm excited about what you're doing. Uh, thank you for asking the tough questions that will advance the opportunities, not only for my kids as they matriculate through the system, but for for really citizens of the world. We want to thank Josh Brogy. I would uh, highly recommend checking out Wolf uh, and all that they are doing. It seems like they are really advancing the cause in ways that are uh, incredibly meaningful. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.